Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word. We pray in your mercy that we would know its work in our lives, helping us to trust the Lord Jesus for salvation, and that we would know its teaching, rebuke, correction and training so that we would be equipped to do the good which our Lord Jesus calls us to. Help us to receive this word with understanding and in your mercy help me to speak it truthfully and clearly as I ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 Uh, doesn't come as an academic monograph on spiritual gifts. It's part of a letter where Paul is dealing with a whole lot of distinct but connected issues in the Corinthian congregation. So as we come to look at verses 1 to 11 of chapter 12, uh, and as we come back to the book, let's just remind ourselves of what's been going on in this letter so far. Uh, Paul had started back in chapter 1, remember, addressing the division over teachers and their rhetorical styles. And then he's dealt with the Corinthian conviction that they've already arrived, that they've got all they needed. He's gone on to deal with sexual immorality, legal disputes, the strong acting with no concern for the impact of their actions on the weak, thoughtlessness and division at the Lord's Supper. Lots of things. But behind many of these issues, there's a deeper issue. And that is the Corinthians being shaped in their thinking about and practice of the faith by the values of their culture and not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Not by the reality that they've been saved graciously by the death of the Lord Jesus, by the foolishness and weakness of God seen in the cross, the cross which was so despised in their culture. You see, the culture of Roman Corinth embraced, admired, the enhancement of one's own reputation and status. It admired strength and power. And so they were competitive in sport, in business, in seeking social recognition. And they practised self-promotion and boasting in their achievements and wealth. And so, for example, it was to increase their own prestige that certain wealthy members promoted specific preachers back in Chapter 1. And it was the wealthy in particular who were concerned for their status and that their status be recognised by others. Even, for example, at the Lord's Supper, even to the extent of having lawsuits with each other. You see, like their city, the Corinthian Christians embraced a confident self-sufficiency, a pride in their own wealth and achievements, and with it a commitment to their own kind of distinctive Christianity, where they got to say, in a sense, what was right. And these characteristics, competitiveness, boasting, a concern for status, a confident self-sufficiency, are also reflected in their thinking about the spirit and spiritual expression. See, from what you heard in chapter 14, it seems that some gifts and experiences, like tongues, were seen as indicating that someone was genuinely spiritual, on a kind of higher plane as a believer. And so those who possessed them were thought of as having, in a sense, a higher status in the community, a self-sufficient status, a status that had to be displayed. And so those who had this gift, it appears, 
were claiming a right to practice it, to express it in the the gathering, regardless of the effect on others. And this has led to their meetings becoming chaotic and unedifying, a gathering that was neither welcoming or a good witness to those outside. And 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is Paul's response to that, as you heard, in which he challenges many of their assumptions, he corrects their behaviour and he makes love for others, not concerned for self and one's own status and reputation, the controlling idea. And he starts, he begins by telling them what it is to be spiritual and by putting God and his grace right at the centre. Now, concerning, the translation has spiritual gifts, but Paul's heading is actually wider. While gifts become the focus of the discussion, the, the phrase is just concerning spirituals, which could be spiritual things or spiritual people, both of which are spoken of in the rest of this section, as you heard, spiritual things, 14.1, spiritual people, 14.37. It's actually better to see it as a general heading. Uh, Now, Paul writes, about what pertains to the spirit or about what comes from the spirit or what shows the spirit to be present. Now, about, well, about what? What pertains to the spirit? I do not want you to be unaware, he says. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus is cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is focusing on what, in a sense, shows the spirit to be present. And Paul has already spoken of what it is to be spiritual way back in chapter 2. So he's picking up a term that he's already used in the letter. And back in chapter 2 he says this, Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, that's us as the apostles, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things, and that's the same word as in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, to spiritual people. Again, the same word is in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. But the person without the Spirit doesn't receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolish to him. He's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. See, back there in chapter 2, Paul has said that it's by the Spirit that we can understand what is revealed by the Spirit, understand the Spirit-given words of the apostles. And the mark of being spiritual is having the mind of Christ, which is a mind that recognises the cross as the power and wisdom of God. And in that discussion back there, Paul's also said 
that those who engage in strife and jealousy are not spiritual. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you were still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? So you see, Paul's already said that being genuinely spiritual is seen in embracing the gospel of the cross, understanding it is the work of God that in saving denies all human boasting and overturns division, say, based on wealth and status and then showing that understanding in the way you treat others, not by quarrelling with them to show how good or important you are. Now, in verses 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's going to expand their understanding of what comes from the Spirit and of how the presence of the Spirit is known by contrast with their past. So he reminds them in verse 2 that, Before they were believers, they were pagans, worshippers of dumb idols. That is, their pre-Christian experience was, as Rosner says, thoroughly marked by deception. There was nothing in their pre-Christian experience that equipped them to know the work of the spirit or what it was to be spiritual, a genuinely spiritual person. Whether they had in the past associated spiritual with certain classes of persons or certain special activities or certain phenomena, it was all self-constructed, for their gods were dumb. So their starting point must be learning from the living God who speaks and who can and does make himself and his will known what it is to be spiritual, what is to be recognised as indicating the presence and work of his spirit. They can only learn that from the living God who speaks. And the starting point for recognition of the presence of the spirit in someone's life is their confession of Jesus, their confession not any particular experience. I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed and no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is cursed is difficult because people have found it hard to imagine a context in which those words would be uttered in a Christian gathering. But Paul is not talking about what is going on in the gathering. Instead, He's giving the clear dividing line between those who have the Spirit and those who don't. You see, in those days, Jesus is cursed would be the conviction held by any, both Jews and Greeks, who knew that the Lord Jesus was crucified and denied Jesus' resurrection. For that was the status of those crucified, cursed by God. So they didn't go around thinking, if they weren't a believer, oh, Jesus is a nice guy, or maybe he taught the truth. You know, we can... No, they think the bloke's crucified, he's cursed. God's done with him. He's under God's judgment. Only those convinced of the truth of the gospel would say Jesus is Lord. 
See, Paul is using statements about Jesus which are extreme opposites to bring home that the work of the Spirit focuses on Jesus and on conviction of the truth of the gospel of Jesus, conviction expressed in confessing Jesus is Lord. You see, Paul is not speaking of the mere repetition of words in a society like ours where those words have no consequences. Jesus is Lord is the statement of belief of those who embraced the gospel. It was proclaimed in the first gospel preaching in Acts. There Peter proclaimed, let everybody know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And it was a saving confession if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Oh, and yes, Jesus is Lord is something that would be admitted by all when Jesus is revealed in glory. You see, Jesus is Lord is a statement of commitment with consequences. It's a statement that distinguished you and then from your neighbours who confessed many lords and many gods. This distinguished you as a worshipper of the one true God, the Lord, who is known in Jesus. It's a statement that qualified your political allegiances. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. It's a statement that acknowledged that you are now to live for him in his service Bought with a price, we see in 1 Corinthians 6, a life that was different from the lives lived by those around you in that culture. Paul, insisting at the outset that the living, speaking God says that confession of Jesus is the sure sign of the presence and activity of the spirit, of being spiritual, is actually doing two things. Firstly, as a confession shared by all believers, well, all believers must be thought of as spiritual, those in whom the Spirit of God is at work. So spiritual is not the status of some special group who had some special experiences or gifts. It's not a way of distinguishing one group of Christians from another, of one group being superior to another. Every believer is spiritual expresses in their confession of Jesus as Lord the work of the Spirit in their lives. And secondly, this establishes from the beginning that the spiritual are those who are committed to using what is entrusted to us by the Spirit in accordance with the command and example of Jesus, their Lord. Well, that's what it is to be spiritual, to say Jesus is Lord. And so this confession lays the groundwork for chapter 13, for the necessity of love. For you can't confess Jesus as Lord without being committed to love and to love especially your brothers and sisters. So in these first couple of verses already, there are two big ideas. You can only learn what it is to be spiritual from the living God. You can't learn it from our materialistic presuppositions which may rule out of hand all sorts of experiences of believers. And you can't learn it from pagan religions like indigenous animism or Eastern spiritual practices. You know, somebody saying that something is spiritual 
doesn't mean it has anything to do with the Holy Spirit of God or has any place in the life of a follower of Jesus if it's inconsistent with the confession of Jesus as Lord. It's not, if it's inconsistent with that confession, it is not spiritual in being of the Spirit of God. First, we got here. And secondly, you cannot divorce being spiritual from obedience to Jesus, from confessing him as Lord and the conformity to Christ that follows. So, for example, a person may have all sorts of visions or claim all sorts of miraculous healings. But if they don't show the mind of Christ in conformity to the teaching and character of Christ, if they seek to use those things to gain a following for themselves or enrich themselves materially, their activity is not spiritual, not of the spirit of God. This insistence that every believer is spiritual and the spiritual are not just some marked out by some special gifts is reinforced by Paul speaking of the great diversity of gifts given to believers and their common source. Now, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord, and there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. Here in verse 4, Paul introduces the idea of gifts. This is the first place where it occurs in the Greek text of these chapters. He introduces the idea of gifts with his term charismata. It is the Corinthians, you see, who want to talk about spiritual things and people. Uh, Paul actually only combines spiritual with gifts in one place, and that's in Romans 1.11 where he says to the Romans that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And actually he's probably there in speaking of imparting a spiritual gift to them, speaking of his spirit-given teaching and preaching. Here in Corinthians, his introduction of the language of charismata is actually an attempt to refocus the Corinthian thinking, turning them away from a preoccupation with themselves, with their spiritual experiences and what it means for their status, to the origin and purpose of activities like prophecy and tongues. These things, he says, are gifts of God's grace, freely given, not a matter of status or worth, not earned by somebody's deserving or holiness. And hear the repetition in verses 4 to 6. It's, it's there, it's plain, isn't it? Different, same, different, same, different, same. Paul's hammering a point. There's a great variety in the gifts, service and activity of Christians, something that he's about to illustrate. But their source, the source of all of them, is the one God, Father, Son and Spirit. Diversity of experience, unity of source. It's not that different gifts have different sources or can be used under the direction of other gods. There are not many lords or spirits, each giving something distinctive, each promoting its own reputation. The gifts are from the same spirit. Their use, the service they're put to, is directed in each by the same Lord and the sustaining power, the effective power of each, is the one God, the Father, working in each. The fact that they're talked about as gifts of grace means actually that our fundamental response for their presence in ourselves and others should be gratitude, not pride or envy. 
That they are gifts of grace should also mean that we are confident that God will supply our needs for his grace to his people is sure, never failing. And note the Spirit, verse 7, gives to each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Every believer is dependent on the Spirit for their gifting for service. And so there's no human patronage involved, no dependence on another person for the gifts the Spirit gives, and therefore no dependence on another for meaningful involvement in the body of Christ. That's from the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, you see, don't reinforce human divisions and distinctions. They actually undermine them. For rich or poor, well-educated or poorly educated, well-connected or marginal, each receives their gift from the Spirit. And those gifts are a manifestation of the Spirit. They reveal the Spirit's presence and working in each believer. And the purpose of every gift, says Paul, is the benefit of the whole, the common good. So the purpose of gifts is not to exclude those who don't appear to possess the more favoured ones and it's not to facilitate competition or status claims, show how special or important someone is. It's not to reassure the recipient that they're genuinely spiritual and it's not for the thrill of a supernatural experience. These gifts are for the benefit of the whole church. In fact, to focus on and pursue gifts for your own benefit or experience is to fail to have the mind of Christ who didn't seek his own good but the good of others. That is, it's to fail to be genuinely spiritual. The gifts of grace are our Father's provision through each other for our common health and growth as a congregation. And that purpose should govern the use of the gifts each of us has been given, as we'll see in verse 11. For the Spirit is sovereign in their distribution. He decides who gets what because he knows the needs of his people. Now, having talked about the great diversity of gifts and service and activities uh, there are because of the grace of the one God, Paul now goes on to illustrate for the Corinthians those different gifts. Now, before we uh, look briefly at each gift mentioned, what can we say about this list as a whole? Firstly, it's illustrative, not prescriptive. It's illustrative, not prescriptive. So Paul's not saying these are the gifts every congregation must have. This is not a shopping list. It's not given to help the Corinthians or us work out what gift they lack and then apply for them to God so they can be really a really effective church. Right? Illustrative, not prescriptive. And it's not a comprehensive list. That's seen by comparison with the second list in the chapter or with the list in Romans 12 or the brief list in Ephesians 4. And there's an entirely unintelligible, oh no, you probably can read it, but it is in the outline and the transcript. It's just a comparison. We'll come back to that. <coughs> the list in 1 Corinthians 12, this first list, oops, what have I done? Now, the list in 1 Corinthians 12 is an illustration of the diversity of the gifts the one spirit gives. And notice that, the repetition, the repetition of the spirit in verses 8 and 9, bringing that home. 
And it's probably gifts the Corinthians might recognise and value, even if not present amongst them. For the only gifts we know were definitely present amongst the Corinthians, actually prophecy and tongues. You see, some might have been placed in the list, like miracles or healings, to put the value the Corinthians placed on prophecy and tongues in perspective. And you see that the ones causing controversy and that are relevant to chapter 14 are actually the last four. And in fact, Paul puts the one they seem to value most, tongues with interpretation, right at the end here and at the end of the chapter, implying it's not the most important or special. And it's also implied here and made clear at the end of the chapter that no one has all of these gifts. In listing the great diversity of gifts, Paul's laying the groundwork for his discussion of the body, of the fact that we need each other if we're to enjoy all the provision that God has made. The discussion of the body in the second half of this chapter. Now, I'm going to make now some comments on each one in this list because you might have questions about it. Notice that I am assuming a certain amount of interest in this, so I'm taking liberty here with time. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it may well leave lots of questions unanswered or raise more, so come and talk. Right, it has to be said uh, that there's actually not a lot known uh, about, uh, about these gifts or about what the Corinthians understood by these or their role in their life. And some of the terms like word of wisdom and word of knowledge actually only occur here. And, of course, obviously we have no recording, no video of prophecy or tongues as they're exercised in the Corinthian gatherings. So a lot of it's just really inferred from chapter 14. But a word or message of wisdom, well, that's most likely teaching about the gospel of the cross and its application to our lives. Remember, Paul has had a long discussion of wisdom in chapters 1 to 2, where the wisdom of God focused on saving people through the folly of the cross. A wisdom we know is only spiritually discerned. So a word of wisdom is probably about the gospel and its application. And because Paul's already had a long discussion of knowledge in chapter 8, a word of knowledge is most likely theological knowledge, gained by reflection on the gospels and scriptures, like 8.4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no God but one. There is no evidence at all and no suggestion in 1 Corinthians that a word of knowledge is, and I'm about to quote John Wimber of the Vineyard Movement, some people believe this, right? He defines a word of knowledge as a spiritual gift through which God reveals facts about a situation for which a person had no previous knowledge. Uh, that's what John Wimber claims, uh, and he insists that you need a word of knowledge to make your evangelism powerfully effective. Now, God may reveal to anyone whatever he wishes about anything or anyone, but this is not what Paul is talking about here. It's not a word of knowledge. Then Paul lists three of what we might call fairly spectacular activities, by faith, Paul is most likely speaking of the kind of faith mentioned in chapter 13, the faith that can move mountains, a God-given confidence in God, in his saving presence, purpose and power to bring all nations to, again in Rosner's words, sanctify his name and that looks to God to do what is needed to bring that about. 
And you sometimes see that. Uh, uh, some see that in, in missionary activity. They've got this conviction that God will do it. He'll bring them to this people. He'll open the door. And it happens. And that's followed by gifts of healings, the kind of healings we see Paul doing in Acts. But notice it is gifts of healings, gifts of specific incidents of healing. There are no faith healers in Scripture. No one who has given a gift of healing all diseases in all circumstances, if you have enough faith, right? No healing crusades. And while Paul at times could heal, actually there were times he couldn't. We know he didn't heal Trophimus, who he left ill at Miletus, nor could he obtain healing from his own thorn in the flesh. And he recommended to Timothy medicinal measures. Take a little wine, he says, for your stomach. Probably not good medical advice today. I'll just pass that on. Okay, okay. Yeah, and... And while those healings are miraculous, Paul lists separately the performing of miracles of doing mighty works, and that seems to be a broader category of mighty works like casting out demons or even works of judgment like the blinding of LMS in Acts. And then we come to the four concerned with the controversy in Corinth, prophecy, the distinguishing of spirits, tongues and their interpretation. Now, there's a lot that's been written about these, but the best understanding of what the Corinthians understood by them, how they experienced them, is derived from chapter 14. And we'll talk more about them there. But briefly, introductory. Prophecy appears to involve intelligible words from God that come from revelation and as intelligible words have the effect of bringing strengthening, encouragement, consolation and conviction to believing hearers. If we were looking for examples, well, perhaps the two recorded prophecies of Agabus in Acts, firstly, where he prophesied a coming famine and secondly, where he prophesied Paul's coming arrest and imprisonment. Uh, Prophecy, this kind of prophecy seems in a sense to be responsive and situational. The distinguishing between spirits appears in Corinth to refer not to, you know, to be able to discern who's got a spirit of this or who's got a spirit of that. It actually appears to refer to the capacity to evaluate, to weigh prophecy, mentioned as necessary in 1 Corinthians 14.29, which uses a verb which is from the same kind of root as the noun here, and 1 Thessalonians 5.21. And spirits, plural, probably refers to the human spirits of the prophets through whom the Spirit speaks. Again, there's a lot of discussion about the next one, different kinds of tongues. Are they human languages? Are they the language of angels? Are they something else analogous to but not actually speech? Speech. Now, all we can really know about them in Corinth is what we read in 1 Corinthians 14. And the three main features seem to be that they're unintelligible to the speaker and audience, yet can be interpreted or translated by somebody with another gift, and they have personal benefit to the individual speaking them. To get Paul's points in 1 Corinthians 14, actually, we don't need to describe exactly what they are or what is their relationship to other languages spoken under the power of the Spirit by the apostles at Pentecost. We we don't need to know that to get the point. In many ways, the discussion about what they are today is driven by a desire to either legitimate or denigrate modern tongues speaking. 
which is actually not the purpose of this passage at all. And then finally, interpretation of tongues is that gift of making tongue speech meaningful to others, which Paul says has to happen if tongues are to have any place in the gathering of believers. Now, what do the gifts have in common? If these lists are illustrative, not prescriptive, can we work out common features of gifts of grace that would allow us to identify other activities as God's gracious gifts to his people and, and welcome them? So, for example, do they have a common, in common an obvious origin in spirit endowment seen in the style of execution? Yeah, well, that might be true with healings. You know, it might be very distinctive healing. But how does a spiritual act of mercy or administration, Romans, look different from any other act of mercy or administration? Are they all non-natural abilities and therefore clearly spiritual? Well, that appears to be the situation with prophecy and tongues. But what about exhorting, encouraging? contributing. These are things all believers are called to do. Oh, are they distinguished by guaranteed effectiveness? You know, really effective administration, that would be a great gift. No, well, tongues would appear at Corinth to be in some ways spectacularly ineffective. Again, what we see is variety. There's variation in the context of their expressions, some in the meeting, others not, like acts of mercy. Some are occasional, like gifts of healing. Some seem to describe settled patterns, like pastors and teachers. There is actually very little that is shared by all the gifts. In fact, what I think is shared by all the gifts is that they're in believers and they're used for the common good. And so I think scripture actually teaches us that anything in a believer, someone who by the Spirit confesses Jesus as Lord, any skill or ability, whatever its origin, that can be used for the common good should be reckoned a gift of grace, a provision by the Spirit for the health and building up of God's people that comes from God's gracious concern for his people. And sometimes those things might be more readily identified by the recipients of the ministry than by the person serving. So in this way of thinking about spiritual gifts, it includes all sorts of things. AVPA, maintaining a website, communication, yes, singing, cheerful service in the kitchen or cleaning, teaching Sunday school. All are provisions of God's grace and sustained by God's grace, along with all the other wonderful gifts Paul mentions, encouraging, administrating, leading, generosity. Now, test all things, brothers and sisters. But I think that's actually a much better way of thinking about gifts of grace. And all these are provided by the Spirit as he wills. God is sovereign with the gifts of God's sovereign with the gifts he gives. One and the same spirit is active in all these things, distributing to each person as he wills. Now, the implication of this sovereignty will be brought out next week when we think of the body. But gifts aren't given, driven by human desiring 
They're not developed from some central plan directed by us. They're given by the Spirit, and so there is no place for grumbling or envy, pride or superiority in relation to gifts. God who cares for his church provides for his church in his grace through his spirit as he wills for his purposes. So think clearly about what it is to be spiritual. Don't be conned by claims that the genuinely spiritual are marked out by this or that gift. Gifts, visions, mighty works don't make you spiritual or more spiritual than other believers. So don't allow yourself to be marginalised or made to feel a second-class Christian by the claims of others that their experiences, whether of tongues or healings or whatever, however helpful to them, are what a genuinely spiritual Christian would have. The sure sign of the presence of the Spirit is confession of Jesus and then using the gifts we have according to the mind of Christ for the benefit of others, not ourselves. And think biblically and welcome an enriching diversity, not only in others, but in yourself. Don't waste your time looking for what you don't have, but use in love what you do have. And if you're not sure what your gift say is, ask yourself, what am I equipped to do? for the building up of God's people and cast the net wide. Can I encourage? Am I savvy at finance? Am I good at online communication? Can I be generous? Am I perceptive about relationships so that I can speak a timely word? Can I teach the Bible? Can I relate to youth? Can I keep the lights on in the church or the live stream running? Or recovering? as the case may be. Ask yourself, cast the net wide and then use that gift. And if you're still uncertain, and we can be uh, when we're still growing up as Christians, try some things and see if God has equipped you for that ministry. If you are a believer, God has gifted you for the building up of his people for the service of our Lord Jesus A manifestation is given to each person for the common good. The Spirit distributes to each person as he wills. Ask yourself and recognise that the body needs us all to use what God in his grace has given us in each other. (coughs) Now we'll think about it more next week, but hear that different, lots of different, and welcome it when you see it. And finally, we should be thankful for and trust the generosity of God for ourselves and for our congregation. God in his word does not speak of charisma and illustrate their diversity to generate discontent and envy, but to assure us he anticipates and provides for our collective needs in the gifts he gives to us in each other, gifts he freely gives according to his sovereign will. We, each of us, are God's provision to each other for the health and growth of our congregation of his body here. Our God, Father, Son and Spirit, provides, directs and empowers these gifts out of his generous kindness 
and love to his people. What we need is the love to gratefully use them, relying on him and the trust that he will both sustain us in our service and continue to provide for all we need as we look to him. For he's no niggard, no miser. His grace is rich and generous, and he loves his people. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are astounded that the Lord Jesus would pour out his spirit, your spirit, on his people. We thank you and praise you uh, for the atoning death of our Lord Jesus that makes this possible, that makes us a fit place for your spirit to live. And we thank you that in pouring out your spirit, you equip each of us to serve our Lord Jesus in serving his people. Uh, We pray in your mercy that you would give us the love to use what you have given each of us for the building up of our congregation and of each other in our trust in the Lord Jesus and in fruitfulness of service. We ask this in his name. Amen.